Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting. Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind, that is the mind of Christ, and to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians confer with the Book of Concord to conform what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we're going to consider why Concord matters for Gnosticism in America today. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Evangelical Lutheran Gold Parish of Emmanuel West Point and St. Paul's Wine Hill in Southern Illinois. And my companion confessor in conversation about this matter today is Pastor Peter Burfine. He is pastor of Our Savior Lutheran Church in Union City, Michigan, and Agnes Day Lutheran Church in Marshall, Michigan. He also serves as a reserve chaplain in the United States Army. And also notable for our conversation today, he is the author of the book, Gnostic America, a reading of contemporary American culture and religion according to Christianity's oldest heresy, and also a series of three books called A Year Crowned in Goodness, which are daily meditations on the gospels of the historic lectionary that challenge some of the Gnostic ideas we see in culture and coming into Christianity. Pastor Burfine, welcome to Concord Matters. Hey, thanks for having me, Pastor Smith. Glad to be here. Yeah, it's a great honor to have you on here. And as I read in that introduction there, the subtitle to the first book that not the series of three books that you've more recently put out, but the first mm-hmm. book that you had there, Gnostic America, and it says a reading of contemporary American culture and religion according to Christianity's oldest heresy. Mm-hmm. And we want to kind of dig in and see how we see that. But I guess as we get going here, a good place to start is, you know, we see that We've referenced it as we go through the Book of Concord here on this show, that teaching permeates several different points that we see come up in the Book of Concord. We've even referenced that St. John, the Apostle, uh, disciple become apostle, uh, doesn't specifically name it necessarily, but uh, he certainly addresses the matter even right there, right after the resurrection and ascension of Christ. So it really has been around for a long time, but just so that we begin with a basis, can you give us an overview of Gnosticism's historical roots, its key ideas, its thinking? Just give us a definition, if you will. So, I mean, it does. It, it permeates all of our important doctrines. It's the incarnation. It's the doctrine of the church. It's the doctrine of grace. And it all, insofar as the creation is the foundation of our entire faith, you know, I believe in God, the Father, Almighty maker of heaven and earth. Gnosticism tries to undo the entire foundation of our cosmic architecture, the entire understanding of everything. And that's why St. John called it the spirit of Antichrist that sort of follows the church throughout history. In fact, I hate to start off with a quote from Pope John Paul, but he's got this statement about Gnosticism. He says, Gnosticism has always existed side by side with Christianity, sometimes taking the shape of a philosophical movement, but more often assuming the characteristics of a religion or a para-religion in distinct, if not declared, conflict with all that is essentially Christian. Gnosticism is Christianity's doppelganger. It's been the anti-Christian religion that's been set up against Christianity from the beginning. And Pope John Paul actually was, you know, big on this whole theology of the body. And I'm seeing now we're 
getting on board with that too, because it is so central to everything. So what is the definition of Gnosticism? Well, to me, the best definition goes straight to St. John in his first letter, chapter four, verse three, where he says, every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. So I guess we could start with a technical definition of Gnosticism, which is the belief that the material world, like I said, the entire cosmic architecture that we frame our thinking, that we, you know, that we reflect the world as you go outside and you just look like, what is reality? The Gnostics believe that all of that is a deception, a corruption, a delusion, even evil, that it was created by a lesser deity, not the true God, but a kind of a cosmic mistake, a cosmic, you know, in one place it's called an, an aborted mistake, like an abortion, like a God that was aborted and became a monster and created this material world. And we as individuals are part of that evil, corrupt world. So our flesh traps us in this evil world. The fall in the Gnostic program, the original sin, so to speak, of the Gnostic program is not because we broke some sort of moral code that the Lord had set up, but it's because we exist. Just our very existence as beings separate from something else makes this an evil situation. It's the, you know, the Gnostics will say, this is the basis of all conflict. You know, the distinction between male and female, the distinction between nation states or the distinction between you as an individual with a family name, you know, a religion, a nation state that you belong to, all your thinking is trapped in this very insular mindset that's imposed by the outside world order. And that's all because we live in flesh, because we live in materiality. So therefore, because that's evil, Jesus Christ, the whole idea that God became flesh, well, that's a complete perversion. Christ did not become flesh. Christ is a savior, the Gnostics will say, but he's a savior that sort of pretended to be a human body, appeared to be a human body. And of course, this is the basis of one of the heresies that's rejected in the confessions called docetism. But Christ appeared to be a savior in order to give us knowledge, not in order to save us and give us faith that will result in the resurrection of our flesh, but he gave us knowledge by which we can leave this world behind, escape it, and enter into what they call the pleroma, which is this realm of perfect harmony and unity where distinctions are erased, where everybody is one. And that's their ultimate salvation program. So that's the heresy in a nutshell. That's the technical definition but it, to me, there's other aspects of it that I find very interesting. And this is where it permeates our politics, our culture, uh, our religion. And I mean, there's, there's a lot of things that we can get into, but that's basically the technical definition. Yeah, you talk about that it permeates our politics and our religion and things like that. Uh, I think one of the interesting things that as, you know, of course, coming through seminary and as a pastor and, and studying these things, you know, Gnosticism was its own religion then, as you said, it begins to permeate and you see St. John even reference, mm -hmm. as you brought out there, that it's the spirit of the Antichrist and so forth. And so let's unpack that a little bit. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about you've given us the definition of what it was and that identifies it as its own religion as well. But unpack that a little bit as its own religion. And then especially let's begin with its influence on the early church and give us some of the historical background of some of the things that we begin to see that play out in early Christianity from St. John on. Yeah, so as you read the Confessions and throughout the Middle Ages, the way they understood Gnosticism was primarily via Augustine, 
who battled it early on in his life. He became a Gnostic. Back then it was called Manichaeanism. So a Manichae or a, Man- a Manichaean was someone who had a very distinct belief system that's essentially Gnostic. So when Luther deals with Gnosticism, he typically calls it the Manichaeans. However, there, there were in Luther's day also these other movements that I argue have ultimately Gnostic roots. And one of them is called millenarianism, which were the enthusiasts and the fanatics of his day, the radical reformers. They all had these Gnostic elements too that we can get into that it's really actually quite fascinating as far as the rise of politics today. But in the ancient world, you would get these movements. There's Valentinism, there's the Gospel of Thomas, there's the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. You had these different gospels that it was more of like a school of thought within Christendom. And what would happen is you would get the, and, and it's, just, it's funny because you, you still get this throughout the history of Christianity. You, you have a, you know, a perfectly ordered church that's doing its job. It's preaching the gospel. It's having the sacrament. Well, then you got some person or some entity or a, someone who claims a self-proclaimed prophet who believes that the Holy Spirit's speaking directly to him. And he's got this inner insight, this inner gnosis. That's where Gnostic comes from. Gnosis, meaning knowledge, this elite glimpse of knowledge and enlightenment that helps him to transcend all those formal ritualistic teachings that have been perpetuated by the church. So he believes he's a prophet who's been endowed with this gift, this insight, this enlightened teaching. And then he proceeds to gather a flock and, you know, boosts their ego up. And it's kind of a cult thing too. boosts their ego up to say, Hey, you're the elite, you're the elect, you're the special ones and gather around me and I'll teach you the true way. And this has a very strong attraction to people who, you know, maybe they're getting bored with the rituals or, or they're just not understanding how the sacraments are feeding them. And so it's always that element in the church that wants something more. And there's also very often a puritanical element to Gnosticism. Gnosticism is always known for either high asceticism or puritanism, or on the other hand, libertinism, because, you know, hey, if our life in this world doesn't matter, you know, we can do whatever we want and it doesn't matter. In fact, that's how we show how little we care about our life in this world is that We're going to have multiple wives and not care about property and just, you know, it's called antinomianism or the belief that there should be no law guiding the Christian life. So that was the main way that it infiltrated the church in the ancient world. And I think it's important to highlight, and you already began to bring in there that, you know, when Luther and the reformers are referring to it in the book of Concord, that the word Gnosticism doesn't necessarily appear in the book of Concord. And we also talked about that in terms of scripture itself. But this thinking is clearly there. And it's under the the Valentinism, the Manichaeans, Mm -hmm. and those things are condemned and spoken about all over the book of Concord. Are there any other particular ways in which we see this play out? Specifically, as in this show, we're concerned primarily with the Lutheran confessions in the book of Concord Mm -hmm. and the Lutheran confessions being the true confession of the Christian faith, right? right? So all of this applies, obviously, but any other kind of ways that we see this, that the reformers specifically combated Gnostic ideas? When Luther did his commentary on this passage we just read, 1 John 4, 3, where he talks about, and this is the spirit of Antichrist, and you heard it was coming and is already now in the world. And, you know, you think when Luther's talking Antichrist, he's going to go to the Pope. Well, actually, in his commentary on 1 John, he talks about the fanatics of his day. And these were the radical reformers. And all your listeners need to understand that the Lutheran Reformation has nothing to do with the Radical Reformation. And even just look at the terminology of radical. Radical comes from the Latin radix, which means root. 
And the whole idea is you uproot everything that came from before and supplant it with something new, a new age, in fact. So these were the fanatics and they started the Radical Reformation. Whereas Luther, he believed he was a Catholic. He believed that he was inheriting the tradition of the church going back to the beginning. And the Lutheran church believes that we are the inheritor of that tradition. So we do not have anything to do with the Radical Reformation. Now, what was the Radical Reformation? The Radical Reformation spawned from a 12th century, 1100s monk, whose name was Joachim of Fior. And Joachim had the brilliant idea, heresy it is, <laughs> that all of history can be divided up into three ages, the age of the Father, the age of the Son, and age of the Holy Spirit. The age of the Father was the age of the law, like the Old Testament rituals, priesthood, temples. The age of the Son was the age of the incarnational understanding of the Christian life, meaning a church, meaning formal doctrines, meaning sacraments, and life centered on word and sacrament. There was a mediation point between God and man, and that was Christ and then the church. And that was, that's the age of Christ. Well, Joaquin believed that we're moving into a new age, which is essentially a Gnostic age, but in the new age, it would be the age of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit would work directly on the heart, independent of these intermediate things like word and sacrament. So consequently, this movement, it's called millenarianism. They believe that the Holy Spirit will fill the elect saints. And then through these elect saints, they will gather together and create communes and these societies that will end up changing the entire world to bring about the kingdom of God on earth. That's how the kingdom of God is going to come on earth is by the Holy Spirit directly working on the hearts of these people, you know, through love and good works and good deeds and all this thing. And they'll start with communes, but then through these communes, they'll start destroying the past, the old world order, and they'll institute, you know, a new Jerusalem or they'll bring about the new Jerusalem on earth. And this will be a, a utopia. This will be a world without poverty and world where property is shared and, and wives <laughs> in, in some of them, in some cases. But all the problems of the fall will be eradicated as people cooperate with God, filled by the Holy Spirit. They themselves become the hand of God in history. And to me, this is just an absolutely gross heresy that Luther steadfastly rejected. He rejected the fanatics. He rejected um, a Munzer, a fellow by the name of Munzer, who had these exact ideas. And the Reformation is marked by a lot of these millenarian communalistic movements. And what I find fascinating, and I find this truly, uh, I mean, this is where Lutherans need to be on the ball, Lutheran theologians, Lutheran pastors, because ground zero of all our problems today, I, I mean, that sounds dramatic, but I'm convinced of this, ground zero of the rise of Marxism, critical theory, the... Uh, just the progressivism and just this understanding of history as God, that we're progressing into this future and we got to be on the side of history and we're going to bring about this new world order that all the problems of the world are going to be solved. Ground zero of that is a man named Hegel, a political philosopher named Hegel. And Hegel is so extremely important. He was a Lutheran. He was a Lutheran pietist who absorbed the radical Reformation tradition he secularized it, he demythologized it and turned it into a political program. And that is essentially, he is the father of the main totalitarian movements of the 19th and 20th centuries. And so to me, I, I mean, just the confessional Lutheran approach to understanding Gnosticism in particular and millenarianism, which is kind of a, a stepchild of Gnosticism, 
understanding this is so extremely important for understanding our current times. All the movement. I mean, the one obvious example of that is what's the big word everybody uses to talk about those who are alert to, you know, the hidden structures of racism and the hidden structural this, that, and the other thing. They're called woke, right? Well, that's straight from Gnosticism. This idea that you have to have this inner insight into the underlying oppressive structures that define race and sex and whatever, sexual orientation, that you have to become woke to that. So Lutheran theologians and Lutherans and people that care about doctrine need to understand Gnosticism because we are in the middle of a very strong Gnostic movement. I wholeheartedly agree with that. And I think it's excellent to point out some of the places that we see this sort of thinking pervade. And of course, flowing forth from that quote you began us with, St. John, calling this the spirit of the Antichrist, as Christians, we all know that the devil, the work of the Antichrist, is behind all of these false things that lead us astray and so forth as well. I want to set aside for just a second some of the you brought in some of the contemporary American culture places that we see this at work. I want to come back to that mm-hmm. idea. Mm-hmm. But before we do, I think, you know, you've highlighted several ways where Gnosticism has infiltrated and attached itself to Christianity. What about Gnosticism makes it especially good or or what about Christianity? Maybe even we could look at it from that angle that makes it so easy to attach Gnosticism to it, that it's kind of syncretistic or almost parasitic maybe yeah, yeah. as a companion to, well, other religions, but especially as we're concerned with Christianity. Yeah. Like the doppelganger thing, like, oh, that looks like Christianity. And you look at it and it's a monster. Um, well, Gnosticism per se, there are Gnostic movements in every established religion. So um, in Islam, they got Sufism, Judaism has Kabbalah. And well, I think Buddhism itself is a Gnostic religion. And I always call I always call Gnosticism. It is the devil's theology. And it goes back to the creation. It goes back to God placed Adam and Eve in a world that, first off, if you look at the background to how God did the creation, every day he took something material and separated it. He made something distinct and gave it formal qualities, you know, light, darkness. And then he named them. So language arises from the multiplicity of created forms. You know, you can't have language without multiple created forms. And so you got the created order, then you got language and God declared at the end of the day, this is good. Okay. So he places Adam and Eve in that world, a world of material things, multiplicity, a world where they can speak. I mean, Adam started naming everything. So language arises from that and it's good to know goodness is to be in that world. Well, the devil comes along and says, no, you can know good and evil. Well, Adam and Eve do good. So the only thing they could know was evil. So the devil then introduces them to this apple. And by the way, time out, I find it very interesting that one of the most significant icons of our age is an apple with a bite out of it. So anyways, um, so through this apple, Eve will have this access to know what evil is. And what is that? Well, it's a world of her own creating. It's a world where she can be God. It's a world where she projects from her mind the desires of her inner desires. And that is the theology of Gnosticism. It's when we project from our desires, from our psychic mechanisms, we project a world of fantasy, a world of, like I say, it's projection, and we turn that into our source of salvation, which is essentially what an idol is. So really, it's this, it's this kind of idolatry repackaged as Christianity. And this is also the understanding of the Antichrist. What is an Antichrist? This is how I define the Antichrist. An Antichrist is when 
God leaks out of the body of Christ, when God leaks out of the body and blood of Christ, and he becomes reconstituted and reformed and reshaped by our own willful desires and our own ideas. And we craft a Jesus in our image and we say, well, this is what Jesus is. And you say, well, that's not the Jesus as he presented himself in scripture. That's a Jesus of your own making. And then the answer is the Gnostic answer, which is to say, well, I believe God is in my heart. I believe God is in me. And therefore, this Jesus that I've crafted in my image is not really my image, but it's God's image. And that's an antichrist. And so that to me is the real danger. It's anytime, you know, Luther talks about this all the time is people putting the desires of their own hearts and putting their own desires and making Christ. They basically take their own desires of their hearts and they name it Christ. And that's the work of the antichrist. The, the confessions really, I mean, the confessions always direct us to the word of God. And to me, the neat thing about that is, and this is a real simple thing. If you're trying to explain this or get apologetic about the Lutheran understanding of the word and Christ, just ask people this question. When you present yourself to another human being, do you manage that moment? Do you want to be the owner of that moment? Do you want to manage how you are known by someone else? Like, do you want to speak the words and present the face, give the name, do the actions by which someone else is going to define you? And people are like, well, of course. You don't go to someone else and that other person will say, well, you're this and you're, I understand you by some overarching narrative and not by who you actually are. Well, why would God be any different? (laughs) When God presents himself to us, when God presents his face, his word, his actions, his name to us, that is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is how we know God. And Gnosticism is basically the philosophy that says, no, no, we define other people. And that's the world we live in, by the way, because this whole critical theory thing is all about, you know, you look at a police officer, not as a human being as a, in his own right, but you look at him as a two-dimensional character in, in this greater psychodrama going on. And he represents the man, he represents the law, he represents racism. So to me, that it's, Gnosticism is this theology that undergirds everything, and we constantly have to be alert to it. You mentioned in there the apple with a bite out of it which represents you know a common technological tool that personally i use almost exclusively i mean i have i've got two of them right in front of me right now as we're we're doing (laughs) and uh you know as you even talk about there and take us back to the creation right you know this is brought out in romans right that we have this tendency to worship the created things rather Mm -hmm. than the creator right yeah and interesting there, too, is that, you know, you're talking about Steve Jobs as the founder of that, and he's another former lapsed Lutheran. So if for oh, no man. other reason this show is important, you know, is because we see that Lutherans uh, who do not understand these things have led to a lot of danger of Gnostic thinking. And I'm completely with you is that it's through these tools, which are great tools for us to use. Right, right. God gives us these things to serve to his glory in our various vocations and so forth. And and you and I are using them now. Yeah. But the danger is, is that it also brings all of this other pervasive thinking that so invades our culture and our faith if we're not careful, if we don't identify it. And so with about five minutes before we take a break here, go ahead. You've already brought out a few ideas here for us. and, And I just highlighted one a little bit more. But give us some other places where we see this Gnostic philosophy influence our modern contemporary American culture and some of the politics and pop culture things that we see out there now? Well, let's riff off of what you just brought up, because I think that is ground zero of some of the main 
attacks of Satan in our world today is our media devices. I don't know if you just noticed, but the Surgeon General came out recently and said that uh, the mental health issues among young people is just through the roof. Suicide among young girls has gone up 40% since 2020. And it's because of isolation. It's because of social isolation. And the whole idea of like, oh, social networking, it's bringing people together. It's not working. The Lord God himself, when he wanted to connect with us, became a flesh and blood person. And there's no substitute for that. There's no substitute for flesh and blood and flesh and blood being brought together. Internet church is no substitute for coming in contact with the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. And what's going on behind this? This is where I probe and I like to, to think about these things. Well, think about, I mean, go back to the creation account and how the curse of death came into the world. When Eve's mind is set on the fantasy world that the devil introduced into her mind through the apple with the bite out of it, if you're in a fantasy world, you're not taking care of the real world. You know, if you're in a fantasy world, you're not taking care of the Garden of Eden and your garden is going to turn into a briar patch, which is exactly the curse that God gave Adam and, and the curse throughout history. And the same thing is happening to us. If we're not engaged in the garden that God put us in, we are going to kind of deprive ourselves of the vitality of life. And th this we could talk about for hours, of course. I mean, young men looking at porn and, and looking at fake fantasy girls rather than the girls that are in their midst, that itself is drawing the vitality of masculinity. And I mean, it's just over and over again. This is the attack that's happening on, on our society right now. It's these devices, undisciplined use of these devices. Like you say, it's, it's a good tool, but the undisciplined use of it is killing us. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you do begin to see that permeate in other parts of the culture then too, is that, you know, you just can't get men to, well, you're an army chaplain, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can't get men to even serve in the military, whereas one time it would have been foundational. Oh, yeah you know, you go off to defend the women and children. Well, we're sending those off to fight for us. And the men are sitting right. at home playing video games and pornography and everything else. Yeah. And so what are some other ways that we see just a couple minutes here that we see Gnosticism in contemporary culture and maybe even politics? Let's hit that one. Yeah, the politics. Well, this gets into like what I said before is when we understand God, we understand Christ as this is God in human flesh. We don't know God outside of Christ. Well, when God, in a sense, leaks out of that, and now he becomes reconstituted by human involvement or human action, well, that's where you get this idea that, well, God is really historical forces at work. And God is when people gather together politically to make a movement, you know, political movement becomes the means by which God brings about his kingdom in this world. And this is where you get the divinity ascribed to history, for instance, like Barack Obama would always say, you know, like we are on the side of history and history, we're going to, you know, we got to answer to history. Well, what, what's history? He's using the word history the way we use the word God. Well, there's a very specific philosophical underlayment to that. And it goes back to Hegel again. But I'd say that's the dominant one politically is, I mean, a lot of people are talking about how, you know, the left right now is behaving as a religion. Well, that's because it is. It's a profaned or corrupted version of Christianity. It's Christian heresy. It's a Gnostic Christian heresy that's perverted. And the, the person to, to read to study this, a uh, philosopher by the name of Eric Vaglin, he was a big philosopher. He's very important in the 1960s, but his whole argument is that leftism and totalitarianism and progressivism and these movements of the modern age, they're all Gnostic because they all start with this idea that there's this elite group of people that have a glimpse or an enlightened knowledge of how the world really works. And all us sheep are just 
fools that need to be led and led by this elite bureaucracy. And that's really where, you know, they should be the leaders. Democracy can't be trusted. You got to hand society over to these elite leaders that are woke, really. Yeah, so pervasive and so much more to talk about here, too. We could go on so much more, but we need to take a break here. On the other side of the break, we'll pick up specific places that we see this infiltrating our Christian faith and how we should be very vigilant about those things. And then also how we can combat those things and be faithful, believing, orthodox, confessional Christians. So we'll continue talking about this with Pastor Peter Burfine. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, and you're listening to Concord Matters on KFUO. When I look at the x-ray of your funny bone, it seems that everything is A-OK. Medical research has proven laughter helps you both emotionally and physically. Wrestling with the basics on Saturday mornings at 9 a.m. are on demand. We've been putting the fun in the fundamentals for over 30 years. Over 30 years? Oh, don't put too much strain on your funny bone. Nine out of 10 doctors agree. It's less painful than getting a flu shot. I don't like it. Oh, yuck. to Concord Matters as we continue talking with Pastor Peter Burfine. And Pastor Burfine, as we get going here in the second half of today's episode, we talked about some of the places in the first half where we identified what Gnosticism is, and we talked about ways that it has historically influenced, where we see it in the Book of Concord, why we need to be very vigilant about recognizing this as the heresy it is. We see it play out even in our politics and culture. Let's go ahead and pick up here specifically with Gnosticism's influence on religion. So, you know, one of the main goals of this show is to not only talk about the historical importance of our Lutheran confession of the faith, the true confession of the Christian faith, right? But also that we can continue to confess that same divine truth that never changes still in our world today. And so if we're going to do that in reference to Gnosticism, that spirit of the Antichrist that's always been attached since, you know, you brought out St. John referencing it, uh, where do we see that then? And well, then we'll talk about how we address it. But first, where do we see Gnosticism in any sort of religion today? Well, there, I mean, there's two ways to look at that. And one of the arguments in my book is that on one hand, you look at evangelicalism or evangelical Christianity, non-denominationalism, megachurch Christianity, however you want to put it. And typically people see that as, you know, this conservative religious right movement. And one of the arguments in my book is that, no, this is exactly just the flip side of the far leftist movements that we see in our current age and, and the true religiosity of progressivism and leftism that we're seeing today. They both come from the same root. One of the books that I discovered, it was a remarkable book. It's called The Cross of Culture. And it, of all things, it was a study of voting patterns in the Midwest in the mid-1800s. Now, that's kind of interesting because that's where all the Lutherans came to settle. But anyways, it was a study of voting patterns in the mid-1800s. And what this guy concluded, and it was just a remarkable conclusion, he said the only way to divide the voting patterns, the two ideologies at war in the mid-1800s, really came down to whether someone, and he called it a ritualist, or a pietist. It was ritualist versus pietist. And he talked about the ritualistic view, which is centered in liturgy, word, and sacrament. And he said the people that fell on this camp and they tended towards one party in those days 
and towards one particular political view, and it was immigrant German Lutherans and also Roman Catholics. <laughs> you know, they're the ones that started the schools. They're the ones that, I mean, to this day, why are most of the private schools Lutheran and Catholic? It goes back to this mid-19th century because the opposing view, the pietistic view, this was a whole different group of people. These are the people that believe that the purpose of society is to make manifest the kingdom of God on earth. And it, it's a very pietistic understanding. It's a very non-sacramental, non-formalistic understanding of the faith. Very charismatic, you might almost say. But that movement actually back then, that movement was connected to the Republican Party. But that movement gave birth to, on one hand, the social gospel movement, which became progressivism, which ended up the far leftism we see today. On the other hand, it resulted in the evangelical movement today. So what ties this all together? It's that simple concept, and it's a Gnostic notion that God leaks out of the flesh and blood of Christ and becomes reconstituted through your projecting, through your ideas. So if you look at both of those movements, they both have that same demon going on that, you know, where is God? How is God located? One group will say, well, he's located through the historical work of political movements working together. And we don't even have to call him God. We'll just call it history. And that's the movement. You go to evangelical and they'll say the same thing. Oh, God speaks to me in my heart. You know, we don't need sacraments. We don't need all this formal doctrine and book learning. God speaks to me in my heart. And church is all about people giving testimonies to how God has spoken on their heart. One of the statistics that I always like to bring up, and it's just, it blew my mind away. 50% of Americans believe God speaks to them, not like by the word of God, but that God personally speaks to them. This is, I mean, this is the American heresy. And that's probably the biggest challenge to confessional Lutheranism today is this, you know, why go to a church? Why submit myself to this ministry of word and sacrament at a church when I can have my own personal connection with God? Well, if you look at that, that's the same error that's going on leading to depression, anxiety, and suicidal ideation of, oh, I don't have to have contact with any people. Like I can just have my own little personal religion, you know, as I hunch over my device all day, I can have my own little personal world and that's good enough. And I don't have to have flesh and blood contact with other people. And, and it's killing us. It's killing us. So to me, I mean, this whole issue of incarnational, confessional, liturgical, sacramental theology is a life or death issue, which, I mean, it's exactly what St. Paul said, right? If you don't acknowledge Christ and, you know, body and blood present in sacrament, it, it results in death. Yeah, absolutely. And as you talk about that, too, it becomes the challenge for like you and I as pastors. We both see this all the time, right? That when it's centered in the self and kind of their own knowledge and understanding and trying to achieve this gnosis, right? You know, mm -hmm. it, it's very emotive then as well. Right. And you can't say anything to it. You know, they, they right. just say, you know, well, well, I have God on my terms. Right. 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 And I don't really need you. And, and it's just, it's really frustrating <laughs> as a pastor. And the only thing we can, of course, do is to continue to speak the truth of God's word. Yeah. Uh, that's the only thing that can break hard hearts, right? And bring the truth of the gospel to bear. And so we continue to do that. But at the same time, it really makes you really sad, right? Because it's like, I can't argue with your own emotions, right? Right. Do you, right. you want to talk about that, reflect on that at all? Yeah. Well, and I love that analogy that I brought up before about do we operate that way? You know, when we present ourselves to another human being, would we like to go to them and say, oh, I know who you are, Pastor Smith. You got a collar, so you're probably one of those, you know, hateful doctrinaire, old 
dead Orthodox guys who wants to make me feel bad about my feelings. And, and you probably are a sexist and a racist and you're probably this or that. And I mean, you, you wouldn't like that, would you? It's because someone else is defining you according to their own heartfelt narrative. And that's their feelings. And most people understand that, you know, they may not under, understand the whole God thing, but they can understand on, as far as our neighbors go. It's not fair to treat, I mean, even nationally right now, I see that going on. It's not fair to treat people according to some hidden structure that only can be glimpsed by the woke. You know, like I say that, you know, a police officer is not seen as just a human being doing his job or his vocation and someone who's got a family, but a police officer is now seen as a symbol, a symbol of this underlying structure and narrative. And he becomes this two-dimensional character in this psychodrama. And that's increasingly how everybody's looking at everybody. And it's just at a base level. It's just not fair. You know, when I talk to someone, I want to manage that moment. And I think using that analogy helps people understand that the same is true with God. When God wanted to make himself known in our world, he became a human being, a flesh and blood person who spoke real words to real people. And he set up his church to continue that event. And there is no other way by which we can know the Lord God, but through the name of Christ. And I think when people start to kind of break that stranglehold on their thinking that, oh, well, God speaks to me internally. Well, that's you projecting. That's you projecting your ideas about God and then calling that Jesus. And that is, that's the Antichrist. <laughs> and I think sometimes people, they start to, the, the light starts to go on and they're like, oh yeah. So how does God manage himself? How does God take ownership of his presentation to us? Well, that's where the word of God comes in. You know, we understand the, the liturgy and the sacraments and the preaching of the word as we're servants of that. Ministers are servants of that word, presenting it to the people. And insofar as we're servants, God is managing that moment, as opposed to me getting up one morning and saying, I feel God is weighing this on my heart to speak this nonsense to everybody and say that it's from God. I don't know. I, that's an analogy that I've been using, and it, it seems to, to work. Yeah, I think you're dead on target with that. And I, I like the way that you set that up, too, because we do see that happen with our clergy, especially our, you know, Orthodox confessional clergy and so forth, that there's all these assumptions made about, yeah. you know, how we present ourselves. But we see that, especially also with our police officers, you gave that example in politics, you know, people of goodwill can be members of both political parties. Right, right. And there are dangers in both as well, right? And I say both, you know, there's really even more than just the, but I'm talking about the major two, right? Mm -hmm. But we see it all over, you know, just because you happen to be associated with one particular political party or whatever, we just make all sorts of assumptions automatically about that, right? And right. so- Yeah, this, this transcends politics. I mean, this is something that people on the right do too. And the main reason is, is because we understand each other through the two-dimensionalized media of the media. I mean, we're, when we're looking at a screen, the third dimension is sapped from that image that you're getting. It's just an image. And in Facebook, for instance, it's a highly managed image. And so, you know, there may be a, a person that you know on, online and they're constantly spouting, you know, leftism. And so all you know them as, as this two-dimensional leftist. Well, if you actually met them in person and sat down with them and spoke with them, you might find that there's a whole different aspect of their life. And, you know, that's the way things used to be, right? You'd get together and you wouldn't talk politics and usually not religion either. But, you know, you just were able to deal with people human to human. And that's what's completely lost now because everybody now is just engaging each other in this highly managed, highly two-dimensional, therefore highly dehumanized 
like I say, the flesh and blood is sapped out of it. And we're engaging each other according to these clashing narratives and not according to the way God created us to be engaged. We're like in this magical realm of fantasy where everybody's dealing with each other according to these narratives. And we're all in the realm of the apple bitten out, right? We're all in the realm that, of evil. I mean, it's, it's, it's evil. Yeah. Well, and denial of the way God created us to be, as you mm -hmm. said, but then also, as you brought out earlier, denial of how God reveals himself to us, yeah. which is in the person of Jesus Christ. It's, it's so foundational. Uh, because of the sake of time, and there's so much more I want to cover on this topic with mm -hmm. you, we could do a whole series on this and maybe we'll have you back on for some more thoughts on this later. Yeah. Uh, I always forget to do this, but listeners, if you have any questions or comments, feel free to send that on KFO at KFO.org. Send that an email or if you have the KFO app, you can leave us a mic drop there that, you know, we'd be glad to take your questions and have Pastor Burfine back on again and answer some of those and dig deeper into this. But just for the sake of today of kind of establishing this and moving forward, you brought in earlier that one of the places we see Gnosticism operating as a religion today, once again, attached to kind of like a parasite or that doppelganger of Christianity, mm -hmm. as you've used, what you called evangelicalism, or often right. on this show, we call it American evangelicalism. Yep. Yep. So talk about how the Gnostic heresy then is still alive and active within Christianity today. Oh, the, let me see if I can pull up this quote from Irenaeus. Irenaeus was the early church father who first handled Gnosticism. Gnosticism, like we've been talking about, was kind of this parasitic movement in the church and would pop up in these churches. And so St. Irenaeus was one of the first church fathers to actually address Gnosticism and deal with it. And as he's describing Gnostics, he used this phrase that I thought was just perfect because it, it was like, this is so current to today. But he said, the Gnostics ascribe whatever they recognize themselves as experiencing the divine logos. <laughs> so basically, this, whatever is going on inside, whatever feeling they have in their heart, they claim to be the working of Christ. And then that kind of, I mean, that's the thing that opened my, my eyes to the, the reality of Gnosticism today was when I read St. Irenaeus' work against all heresy. And throughout his book, one of the big things he talks about is how they reject the sacraments. They don't believe that the body and blood of Christ is present in the Holy Communion. And I'll tell you, Talk to an evangelical, and that is one of, you can just see that this is a, an incredible challenge, that in the early church, as early as the early 200s, there is a church father who is saying, hey, communion is the body and blood of Jesus Christ, and here's this movement, this Gnostic movement that's totally anti-Christ, and they're denying that Christ is present in his flesh and blood. And so that, to me, is, that's the moment of God leaking out of his flesh and blood. And even, I, I don't know if it's, if Calvin owns this teaching, but this idea that the finite cannot contain the infinite, you know, the idea that, well, God can't be present in communion because God is infinite. God is way bigger than finite things. So how can God be present in the Eucharist? Um, I always like to tell this story of, I had a student once in, in a Latin class, and I was making this argument about Gnosticism and, and talking about how the passage that we read before says that anyone who denies that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is an antichrist. Well, I focused on that phrase has come and talked about how it's a perfect tense verb and how therefore it's still in existence. You know, if you deny that Christ has come in the flesh today, that you still locate Christ in his flesh and blood today, that's the teaching of the Antichrist. It's, it's this whole idea of God leaking out of Christ and being re reconstituted by human projection. Well, anyways, as I made this argument, he said to me, but you know what? God is bigger than the perfect tense. And right there, just kind of crystallized 
the heart of the evangelical heresy, which is that God is bigger than his church. God is bigger than formal doctrine. God is bigger than the creed. And ultimately, God is bigger than Jesus himself. And this we started seeing in the emergent movement that kind of got had its little day about 10 years ago. But the emergent movement, they literally would say stuff like that. Like, oh, don't be bound to names like Jesus and don't be bound to doctrine. You know, Christ is present as we go out into the park and pick up garbage or as we, you know, meet at a picnic table and pray together. It's this idea that God is bigger than the formal means by which he has caused us to know him. That's the essence of the evangelical heresy that we need to be on guard against because that, that's Gnosticism. It goes straight back to Gnosticism. As Lutherans, how do we see this Gnostic heresy maybe attacking us or trying to infiltrate us still today, uh, especially as this radio show represents the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod? How should we identify this and where might we see this still working today? So one of the things I studied in my book, because it, it's a huge, I think a lot of the problems of our day, at least 20, 30 years ago, centered around the role of music in the church and the role of music in worship and all that. So I pursued a, a study of music in the history of the church. And lo and behold, what did I discover? But that in the early church, the Gnostics of all people were using music as a technique to get people to focus on the inside to manipulate people and get them worked up in order to kind of work up the internal feelings that they were getting. And music was a means by which people would be connected to God. And in fact, if you look in the ancient world, there's a whole background to this. And this is where the term enthusiasm came from, which is enthusiast is someone who believes God directly inspires them and directly works on them. And Aristotle actually listed one of the modal tunes that caused enthusiasm. And I think it's the Dorian. I can't remember which one. It's, it's the mode that Greensleeves is in and Enter Sandman by Metallica. They, they all use this, this same mode, but that's neither here nor there. But the point is, is that music has this capability of leading people to have these ecstatic visions or music has the power to create worlds in our minds that people can claim to be God. And if you look at the ancient mystery religions, I mean, that was huge. I mean, they'd used a flute back then and get people all worked up and they'd have a vision of the God. And Wagner, the composer in the late 1800s, he had a very strong belief that music kind of was this access to God. Well, I think in the 50s and 60s, then music became popularized first with jazz and then rock and roll. And then that settled into the church and became, you know, I mean, I remember reading books in research for a book where people would say things like, you know, the, the paradigms of what churches have changed. It used to be that you'd connect with God through doctrine and sacraments. Well, now we're understanding that we connect to God through music. And I would say that's probably the primary, I think a lot of people hold in their heart that we might be true on our doctrine. We might be true on our understanding of the sacrament. But if you don't have the right music or if you're not pleasing people with the music, then it's not legitimate. I'd say that's one of the center influences in the Lutheran church, at least. And I think that highlights really well just how insidious this Gnostic heresy is, because, of course, it's God who gives us music and right, right. And made as a point on this show multiple times. We've done Why Concord Matters for music in the church and hymnody and that right from the beginning, as has been depicted by many faithful theologians, music is 
how we even understand creation coming into being. Mm -hmm. And it's, of course, very central to our gathering together, especially for us as Lutherans, that music is there. But this is where that Gnostic heresy comes in is, and we we're constantly fighting this battle mm-hmm. at different points of where it does become that emotive thing that sort of replaces where God has told us to find him. Right. Don't find him in the music. Confess the faith through the music. Exactly. <laughs> right. And then that you're right. That needs to be clarified because there is a an anti-Gnostic position that music has no place in the church. And it, surprisingly, they actually can get some interesting arguments. But I think that itself is a Gnostic puritanical idea. But um, yeah, the, I mean, the church has always had music and it's always been one of the beautiful elements, but it's always been in service to the word. It's always been something that leads people into the word. Right. Yeah. You got kind of the two ditches on either side that you can yeah, fall off. Yeah. There. And as I often like to say on this show, you know, the Christian life is a life lived in tension and that that requires living in attention, which is not easy to hold. And so don't fall off to either side. And I, right. I think that's an excellent way to kind of point that out. And you see that play out again in so many other religions. I remember I've been to Haiti several times. I uh, used to be a part of an orphanage down there and would go down on mercy missions and so forth and working there. And you see this with, you know, the voodoo religion there that mm-hmm. they, they literally would use music to kind of work them up into yeah. the state to see the voodoo gods and things. And you see that play out in Pentecostalism and, and so forth as well. It, it's just it's definitely, you know, it does attach itself to a lot of religions. And so it's not surprising to find it crop up there and be a threat, even to us as Lutherans in one of our places to be vigilant because music is so central and right. important to us. But let's push on then. So what are some of the other dangers then of this hidden Gnosticism to our concord, our unity as a church body, kind of playing off that idea there that I just brought out with the music? Yeah, I mean, it- Keep in mind uh, kind of what we started talking about is Gnostic movement always begins when one person believes that God has endowed them with gnosis, that is a hidden secret knowledge or an elite knowledge of how things really are. And then this person will pop up and start to say, well, God told me this and this is the way things are and you need to follow me. Well, I mean, that's why heresy means, you know, it's a Greek word for the division or schism. And the source of schism is always when you have these one group of people claiming that God spoke to them versus the established order of the church going back to the apostles that started at the beginning. And then you have schism. You have a breaking up of the harmony. And this happens not, you know, I, I put it very literalistically. How often do you get, you know, a lay person popping up and saying something? But although that does happen, I mean, you might say like, hey, I was at the conference or I saw on TV that this evangelical program is out there. We need to do this. Or they're listening to some evangelical radio show and they bring that in and, you know, why don't we do that? And then suddenly you lose out on some of the concord because we're not feeding from the fountain of our, of our Lutheran doctrine. But at a more grand level, I mean, it, it definitely is a lot of the pastors who, you know, they go off to these hotel conferences and they learn about leadership or they learn about some new fancy program or some new concept of what the church is supposed to be. And they don't, might not use the terms of, well, this is, you know, this is God speaking to me. But in a sense, they do because they'll, they kind of speak like progressives, right? They'll say, well, this is where history is going and this is what we need to do. And I believe God is moving us in this direction. And the smart church, you know, the church in tune with the zeitgeist will do these things. And I'm going to be the prophet that's going to lead you into the holy land of this new program. 
And that, that's been dividing the church. I mean, especially the last 50 years. I mean, we got the church growth, the, you know, all, all this different stuff that really has brought disharmony to our church body. So with about five minutes left here in today's episode, again, hopefully we'll maybe have you back on to dig into some of these things more deeply. Please mm-hmm. send us your questions if you have any of those listeners. But as we look then, you know, we've talked about several ways of which we need to be vigilant in identifying it for what it is as a heresy that destroys our concord. Talk then, begin to talk about how should we fight against this? Not in a way that, you know, you can't fight the Antichrist yourself apart from Christ. And, right. and all of, we understand that. And Christ has the victory already. We understand that. But as we seek to be vigilant and, again, not attacking individual human beings, as you've stated that very well as well, that we treat them as fellow human beings. Right. But as we begin to combat this idea that it not destroy the true Christian faith and our unity, our concord together, what are some ways that we can begin to combat that? One of the ways that Christians can fortify themselves against the Gnostic heresy is by going to that moment where Gnosticism begins. And you got to think about how the entire foundation of Gnosticism is to look at the world around us. You know, you wake up, you go out into the world and you see nothing but evil. You see threats, you see bugaboos all over the place. You see war, you see famine, you see pestilence. And as Jesus teaches, there's four horsemen in the apocalypse, war, famine, and pestilence. And the fourth one is false prophecy and false Christ. Well, that comes on the heels of these evils because what people see is they see all these evils. And when they look at the world, they look at a world still in need of salvation. And so therefore, they still need a savior. And that's where the Antichrist comes in. He comes in and says, I will promise you escape from this world, or I will promise you a utopian world that'll take care of all these problems. So that fundamental thing of looking at the world and seeing nothing but evil. But let's look at what the liturgy and the word of sacrament do for us, because this is so important. This, This is the foundation of the books that I just came out with, these meditations on the historic gospels. But when Christ ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of the Father, that triggered the sending of the Holy Spirit. He says, unless I return to the Father, you know, I can't send the helper who will come to you. And what is the helper going to do? Jesus says, he's going to take of mine and give it to you by way of declaration. That is by the word. It's going to create a new world, just as the Holy Spirit by the word created the first world. It's going to create a new creation. So, what belongs to Jesus that the Holy Spirit is going to deliver into our hearts? Well, what does Christ have? He has heaven. He's surrounded by heaven, the angels. He's surrounded by pure goodness again, like the Garden of Eden was. He's got a reestablished relationship with the Father. He's got ownership of heaven and earth as all authority over heaven and earth. Well, that is given to us by faith, which is to say that when a Christian wakes up and looks at the world and looks around him, he is able to mouth those words of the psalm that my eyes beheld the goodness of the Lord. And that's the mystery of the Christian faith is that person can stand in the arena facing the lion who's about to maul him and say, oh, here it comes. I love this lion. He's going to bring me to Jesus. Or like St. Andrew on his feast day a couple of weeks ago, St. Andrew actually wrote an ode to the cross that he was going to die and his cross was like an X and he was going to be crucified on that cross. And he wrote an ode to the cross saying, oh, cross, how I love you. Because Christ has made you a doorway to be with him again. And I think that's how Christians best equip themselves against this Gnostic heresy is they really got to go back to their faith. But it's a faith shaped and molded by the, I use this phrase, cosmic architecture 
Well, the liturgy is a cosmic architecture in which our faith is formed. And we need to get back to that. We need to get back to an understanding of that. And that will fortify our faith and that'll fortify us against this Gnostic demon that's rising in the church today. And as we highlight so often here on this show, especially, it's because it's all centered on the word and right. the place Christ has gathered us, right? Yeah. Which is delivered in his sacraments. Yeah. I mean, the word, I mean, the whole creation began with the speaking of the word. The word speaks things into existence. And that's exactly what the Holy Spirit does with the new creation is the liturgy is, it's not just the word of God, but it's the word of God as shaped by Christ, who's sitting at the right hand of the father, which is to say that it's creating, it's really, you could say it's creating heaven in our hearts. It's creating heaven in our faith life so that the Christian can walk around and behold a world that's like the Garden of Eden, that he's in heaven. The Christian can look at his neighbor and see, you know, a saint or see someone that for whom Christ died. And that just changes our entire outlook. And it's an outlook that people need because all we're getting from these Gnostic times is how bad the world is and how evil everything is and all these underlying evil structures. And it's just, that's not what Christ did. Christ rules over all things. And if he rules over all things, if there's an evil, he's working it for good. And that's what our faith believes. And that's, that's wonderful news. Absolutely. And of course, also as pertains, and we could have gotten in if we had time, but we got to wrap up here today. Of course, our Lutheran confessions seek to teach that word too. So as we ground ourselves in these things, as the word is delivered to us, that's the best way to fight this Gnosticism. So thank you so much, Pastor Peter Burfine, for... Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's been a great pleasure having you on Concord Matters today and confessing with us why Concord Matters for identifying and being vigilant against this ancient heresy of Gnosticism and still in our culture today. And thank you also, dear listener, for stopping by today. And until next time, keep confessing, church. 